Hi, everyone. Bethany here. We've got a live show coming up that you should know about. Science for the People will be at the American Association for the Advancement of Science Meeting, or AAAS, to its friends. We, and by that I mean me, Bethany, are heading to their live podcasting stage. Come out at the AAAS meeting in Washington, D.C. on Friday, February 15th at 1.30 p.m. to hear about plastic. Plastic, plastic everywhere. Where is it going and what do we do about it? And if you come out to the show, you will get the chance to be the people who ask the questions. Get your questions ready and get ready to show me up. Hope to see you there. Now, onward to the podcast. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today, we're talking about maps and all the things we can do and often have already done with maps. With me are the authors of All Over the Map, a simply marvelous new coffee table book from National Geographic. I have with me Betsy Mason, a science journalist based in the San Francisco Bay Area. She has previously been the online science editor for Wired, where she built an award-winning science section and was the science reporter for the Contra Costa Times. She was a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT for the 2015-2016 academic year, and she also has a master's degree in geology from Stanford. Betsy, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. And also with me is Greg Miller, a science and technology journalist based in Portland, Oregon. Previously, he was a senior writer at Wired and a staff writer at Science Magazine, where he won several honors and awards for his work. Greg also writes about neuroscience and other areas of biological and behavioral science. He earned a PhD in neuroscience at Stanford before becoming a journalist. Greg, welcome to you too. Hi, glad to be here. Let's talk about maps. So I want to hear from each of you. Uh, maybe, Betsy, we'll start with you about how you got interested in mapping specifically. Well, I don't do a lot of actual mapping myself, although I have tried, uh, and it's it's a lot more difficult than you might guess. But I did make maps in college and graduate school when I was uh, studying geology. And I think that learning how to make geologic maps was probably part of what really got me into maps. It's when I first realized that maps can do so much more than just help you find your way or locate things in space. Um, and I've just grown more and more fascinated with maps the more Greg and I have uh, learned about them as we've been writing about them for uh, the past five or six years. Um, you know, I think my, my earliest memories go back to being a little kid in the back of the car on family vacations, uh, just rummaging around through all the maps my, my parents had stashed back there. I think the maps really kind of piqued my curiosity about the world and, and what all was out there waiting to be explored. Um, and I still, you know, all, all this time later, I think there's something just really visually compelling about maps, at least for me, that uh, makes me want to know what's what's going on there, what's the story behind the map. I was interested to see what your science background was, because I saw that um, Betsy has a background in geology, which for a lot of people uh, has sort of mental connections that they can immediately make with, ma make with mapping. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at your science background in neuroscience, perhaps uh, not quite so obvious connections between neuroscience and mapping. Yeah, but not not totally unrelated. My my PhD um, had to do with how the brain represents uh, spatial information, how how the brain converts um, the things we see and hear into a map of the space around us and helps us navigate that space. 
There is something about mapping that draws a lot of people in. Uh, it's not unusual to see people spending a lot of time looking at all different types of maps. I remember as a kid, I spent a lot of time looking at globes and atlases, and I regularly, if there's an atlas around or a globe around, you see kids playing with it and looking at it. So what what is it about maps that draws us in? Well, I I do think that there's something just visually appealing that just grabs people's attention oftentimes. And that may have something to do with the brain's particular relationship with maps or, you know, with sort of space in general. But once you start looking at a map, if, if you're actually looking at it, there is almost always more to see than you first see when you glance at it. And so I think that that's probably part of why people spend a lot of time looking at maps. Um, there's layers of information in almost any map. It's one of the things that definitely I find looking at maps in general. And one of the things I found about this book in particular, and a lot of the maps in here was you could, I mean, I could spend so much time just pouring through the details. And there are so many details and so many different layers of information built into a lot of these maps. And I, f I find it really fascinating how, how much you can um, how much information you can transmit to another mind just in this visual form. Maps can be so dense. Yeah, I, th that I think that's that's true because they're um, they're they're sort of they're visual and in in a way that's that's very intuitive for for people to understand. I think they're a really effective way of of communicating a lot of information. Uh, they're very efficient means of of communicating. On all kinds of levels, about the, the you know the the spatial relationship between things, um, there's always there's always more than initially meets the eye in a map. I, I think a good illustration of that, Greg, is uh, your story on the Soviet military maps. Um, how they sort of described it as a precursor to a, a internet web page about a given place. Yeah, these were these were uh, maps that were made during the Cold War by the the Soviet military, and um, they're just incredibly detailed maps of um, American cities, European cities. Um, they map the entire world at, at at seven different scales, but the city maps are just insanely detailed, down to the the footprints of buildings and and things like that. And they pack on all these additional details, like the the load-bearing capacity of our bridges and what they were made of and how high above the water they were, and uh, which sort of raises the question of how, how they got that information. But yeah, the idea um, that Alex Kent, uh, a geographer in, in the UK who's done a lot of research on these, uh, thinks of them as a sort of pre-internet database where the Soviet military put everything that they had learned about the outside world um, on the maps in, in the days before uh, computers. I definitely think um, the the Russian Cold War maps in particular are really good examples of something that a lot of really good maps do, which is allow you to both sort of zoom out and get an overview look at an, an entire space or an, an entire set of ideas in this case, you know, entire cities. You can kind of look at the whole shape of something. Um, but you can also drill down to a small portion, um, like you do often in the book where you kind of call out a large section of the map and then give us a close up view of a, of a smaller piece of it. So we can see how detailed some of these maps get as you drill into them. And that definitely seems to be a feature of, of some very 
good, very interesting maps is that you can use them on at kind of any zoom level. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's if you ask cartographers what makes a good map, one of the I mean, of course, there's some disagreement. But one of the things that comes up most often is, is visual hierarchy that you should be able to, at first glance, uh, get a sort of overview. And then at the longer you look, uh, reveal new layers of information. And the Soviet maps certainly do that. They're, they're really well made maps. I also want to talk a little bit about the idea of maps and diagrams, and also a little bit about infographics. Some of the um, maps that you've included in this book to some people might read less as maps and more as diagrams, or potentially even infographics. So is there a line to be drawn there? Or are the definitions a bit fluid? There's probably a line, but we didn't draw it. We, we've taken a very broad view of what is a map. Um, anything that could probably qualify in someone's mind as a map, we, we, if we like it, we'll, we'll include it. But I think, you know, something that's intention is a spatial representation of things, uh, even if that's not exactly geographical, uh, could be, could, could qualify as a map. Um, so we've got, we definitely have things that I think people might think of as diagrams, like uh, maps of the neurons in the hippocampus or uh, some different maps of, uh, you know, the flow of goods around uh, the world and, and things like that. But uh, in my mind, they're definitely all maps. And we'll, we would count architectural blueprints as maps. Um, uh, we and in fact, we do have the sort of blueprints of the Death Star in the book. I love that one. It's it's. I like that you guys incorporated not just sort of factual maps about the real world, but also some really fascinating mapping work of imaginary spaces. Uh, you called out the Death Star, but also there is a fascinating um, map by uh, Jerry Gretzinger. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, I absolutely love that section. Can you talk a little bit about that map? Because that was very cool. Yeah, uh, I wrote that one. And, and Jerry's map is definitely one of my favorites. It's It's been a favorite for a long time. And I think one of the things that just keeps me interested in his map is trying to understand why he does it. He's been working on this map of an imaginary world that's just in his mind for uh, 35 years now, and that's over the course of 55 years. So he's been doing this since he was uh, a college student, and he works on it every day. And not only is he continuing to add to the map in physical space, he's also editing the existing map. So right now, this map is made out of eight by 10 pieces of paper, and there are over 3,500 pieces, and the map is more than 55 feet across at this point. And it keeps growing, but it's also constantly changing. So there's seven or eight, I think he might even be on the ninth generation of some of these panels of the map. And so you can watch the map as it became sort of less map-like and more uh, abstract. And he started incorporating all sorts of other things into the map. Like it started out with sort of city grids and things you could recognize as town centers and rural areas and, and even mountain areas and rivers and all that. And now there are bits of his journal, there's parts of letters, there's pieces of magazines, and uh, lots of different colors that 
don't look natural. There's areas that have turned from green to purple. And he continues to do this every single day. It's amazing. And he's developed this crazy system to guide him in how to change the map. And it's based on a deck of cards and it's sort of based on chance, but he, of course, has designed the deck of cards and changes it when he doesn't like what's happening to the map. But the cards will tell him to, say, add an airport to an area or uh, add new paint colors or to add a new panel to the the outskirts of the map or to uh, add a void, which is sort of one of the strangest instructions on the cards, but that just means a blank white spot appears on a panel. And that void can grow, it can swallow entire towns, uh, but you can also build defense walls against the void if the cards if the cards bring that up in time and maybe save a town from being swallowed. I just, I had never heard about this map before uh, or this project, and I just love this so much. It's such a an interesting game to have developed to kind of play with yourself and play with the idea of space and mapping and art. I, I'm just so in love with this little pro- with this little project, this big project, this enormous project. Yeah, I think Jerry would actually really like that description of uh, how you put it. What he's doing, uh, that he's playing a game with uh, space and art. He spends a lot of time thinking about whether or not his map is art. I think it definitely is, but uh, you know, some people might disagree, I guess. Uh, it's really hard to talk about this map without showing it because it's just, it's just incredible looking because it definitely looks like a map, but then it also looks kind of crazy and it's just, you know, swirls of color and, and tons of tiny details. Um, I actually have a, a couple of uh, copies of some of the panels from his map on my wall. Oh, it, it's amazing. And where we're able to, we'll link to some pictures so uh, some of the, the listeners can look at some of the images um, that are available as we're talking. Because obviously, as we've said, mapping is a highly visual, um, a highly visual experience. And we don't want to, uh, we want to provide as much of that as we can, given the medium. Um, I want to talk a little bit more as well about the idea of maps and art, because this is something that is constantly coming up when you look at maps, when you talk about maps, in the way maps are uh, viewed by the world and by people, and also quite often in the ways maps were originally designed in some cases, there is a a very gray spectrum between a a map as an idea of just like a, a way to portray facts or the way to create spatial representations and the idea of map as as art, which is sort of core to the idea of map making, because even when we close our eyes and think of what is a map, and we think back to the history of where maps first came up, art has always been kind of baked into the the base idea of what a map is. I think a really interesting example of that um, in in the book is the there's a section on um, early the earliest maps of the moon uh, that were made shortly after uh, the invention of the telescope. Um, a lot of those maps were, I mean, the, again, they're, they're, they're images that a lot of people might look at and, and not consider a map because uh, they look like just a, a beautiful sketch or drawing of the moon um, by Galileo and, and other people. Um, 
who were among the earliest users of, of telescopes. They were Some of them were artists themselves, but a lot of them were kind of collaborations between um, the more scientific-minded people who were inventing and building and using telescopes uh, and actual artists who could help them um, capture what they were seeing um, for the first time. Now, the, the detail in, in the surface of the moon. Um, and then those quickly became maps as, as people started putting names on the craters and, and various features. And not long after that, squabbling about which um, saints and noble people they should be named after. But that's a, an area where the, the, the very first maps really came out of a collaboration between artists and scientists. I think I think cartography sort of in its in its essence is a is a collaboration between art and science uh, and the best maps excel at both in in my mind and one example from the book is a map of the Grand Canyon that was made in the 1970s by uh, a man named Bradford Washburn, who is a famous mountaineer and explorer, and he spent eight years making this map of the Grand Canyon, um, partnered with National Geographic. And he was so careful about every detail of, uh, he actually measured the canyon again, did all the surveying over again, measured every bit of trail, and uh, used the newest lasers to measure distances between points. And uh, had himself dropped onto little spires in the canyon by helicopters. And then this, he also spent years hiring the best cartographic artists um, in Switzerland and uh, one of National Geographic's great Swiss-trained cartographers and just sweated every detail about how much blue should be in the shadows, exactly how they would draw the cliff faces, you know, what color the contour line should be, and and his goal was to make it look like the Grand Canyon, but also just be a beautiful cartographic masterpiece. And I think it's just a, a, a really nice uh, combination of extremely accurate and extremely beautiful. It is a, an absolutely gorgeous map. And like um, many kind of overview bird's eye view maps we create, it's difficult to place it on the spectrum from map to landscape art. Uh, this was one of the ones that stand out, but there were several maps that you profiled in the book that when you look at them, um, they wouldn't look out of place, just massive on a wall as a piece of art. Uh, the fact that they are very detailed representations of actual landscape is a is not secondary, but those two things, you sort of have to capture them and hold them in your mind at once. Um, and the way that artists use to try and show you a vast landscape that is actually quite difficult to represent accurately in two dimensions is quite fascinating to read about. Yeah, there's, uh, I think there's, there's two really good examples of that that are sort of look like more like, uh, landscape paintings and, um, they're sort of related. One is by, uh, an Austrian, uh, I guess people called him a panoramist, um, cartographic panoramist named, uh, Heinrich Baron. And the, the piece of his that we have is of Yellowstone National Park and it's, just beautiful. But what's interesting about it is that it's actually more beautiful than any view of Yellowstone that is actually possible. Uh, and part of that is because he uses um, sort of a non-existent oblique view of the park, for one. And he also uh, 
is quite accurate about things in the park and how they look and the colors and all those sorts of things, but he also uh, exaggerates some things and contorts some things and tweaks things about the landscape to make, to bring out uh, the best of the park in this one view. So for example, uh, the view is looking south and at the south end of Yellowstone is um, Teton National Park. And so if you were looking from this view that he has, though, you'd be looking end on on the Teton Range. And so it would just be one little sort of blob and totally unrecognizable. So he just rotated the Tetons about 55 degrees so you could see their iconic face in this view. Uh, he also made the geysers bigger than they they actually are and uh i think also the old faithful lodge is about three quarters of a mile long in his in his uh painting but the end result is such a true representation of yellowstone and yet a more beautiful representation than you could get if you were looking at it from a plane in in a similar view I love this idea of accuracy in maps. Um, we assume that what we see in a map quite often is fact, that that is the space uh, as it stands, uh, in particular about map with maps that are all about the space that you can see or the space that's around you. But quite often, if not always, you have to do some kind of distortion in a map because you're taking a 3D space and making it kind of fit a 2D environment. Um, one of my favorite examples that you call out in some detail in the book is the idea of building uh, ski maps. Um, so on various ski hills, how they go about creating the maps of where the trails and the chairlifts and all those kinds of things are. I found that section really interesting. Yeah, that's actually the second example that I was uh, thinking of. And this man, Jim Nehues, has painted uh, virtually, well, at least the majority of uh, ski resorts in North America. But he's actually quite inspired by Heinrich Baran. But he's also making a map that people are going to actually use to navigate by. So he had the challenge of getting everything that's important, every face of the different slopes, which might be at completely different angles, and somehow showing them in one view, but keeping everything uh, relatively true and all the different heights and lengths of trails and, and directions of trails so that, you know, all the, all the lift lines appear to go up and all the trails appear to go down. So it was really, uh, challenging for him to make sure that the map was intuitive, but also capture everything. Like some resorts have got, you know, slopes that you can ski down on two opposite sides of a mountain. How do you show that on one map? Uh, so he does sort of distort things in a way, but also has to keep them so true to life su such that if the skier is using it, they won't notice. Yeah, they need to be distorted so you can see everything in a space where no such map exists, but also realistic and factual enough that if you're in the middle of the space, you can literally use it to guide you around the space. Yeah, if you've skied in North America, chances are you have used one of his maps. Um, and on top of that all, they're beautiful. They're just beautiful. They're, they're you know, work of art paintings. 
This idea reminds me of another kind of well-known map that is not at all true to life when you sort of put it on top of an actual representation of the space, which is something like the London Underground map, that iconic image that you get of the stations and where they are and the different lines that connect them and their sort of logic around where they're connected. If you actually look at the underground system and those stations as they exist with streets and, and roads, it doesn't look at all like the map, but somehow the map of those stations still gives you everything you need to know while not necessarily being true to the, the, the factual spatial representation if on street level. Yeah, the, the transit maps are a great example of cartographers uh, you know, prioritizing how people are actually going to use the map over actual geography. If you're trying to get around London, you just need to know which line to get on and, and where to get off. You don't necessarily need to know every curve and, and twist that the track takes. There are so many parts of life that kind of get built up around maps as well. Um, keeping with London, I was delighted to find you profiled the geographer's A to Z map of London. Uh, mm. Could you talk a little bit about that map and some of yeah, the, the information that that's grown up around it? It's what, such a lovely map. Yeah, the, the A to Z guides, as they say there. I, I lived in London for, for a short time um, for, for an internship when I was just getting started as a science journalist, and I totally relied on my A to Z. I still have it um, tattered, torn, and uh, you know, coffee-stained on, on my desk. Um, they're just incredible. London is such an organic city. It's There's no grid. It's just this um, medieval uh, street pat pattern of streets that um, is bewildering to, to a newcomer. It's a, it's a big city and a dense city, and the streets change names after a block, and there are all these tiny little hidden alleyways, and um, it's really hard to find your way around. And this was kind of in the days before GPS, so um, there really was no better way than an A to Z guide to, to finding your way around London. I've always loved how those maps just pack so much information uh, into a into a small space, but they're still they're still remarkably legible and readable and usable. So I think there's there's a real genius to that. That map somehow manages to be both momentarily overwhelming and <laughs> incredibly clear at the same time, which is not mm -hmm. an easy feat. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, I'd also love for you to talk a little bit about the uh, map that spread a little bit of misunderstanding quite by um, by accident, which talked about the canals of Mars. I had read about this a while back, and I was delighted to also see this particular map and series of maps profiled in your book. Yeah, the, that's that's one of the more interesting stories of maps leading us uh, astray, but uh, you know, early on, um, as people were starting to draw sketches of the moon, they were also, um, you know, just catching their first glimpses of Mars. And as telescopes got better, the pictures that people were drawing of the planet got better. And at some point, people, uh, astronomers started to see these sort of dark lines and light areas through the telescope. And they started drawing those as continents and water, uh, which is obvious thing to do since that's sort of what our planet looks like. And soon uh, one particular astronomer um, named Giovanni Schiaparelli started making those dark lines straighter and straighter. And this is what he was seeing in the telescope. And there's still some sort of disagreement about 
what he was actually looking at. But as those lines became straighter and straighter, it became really difficult for people to accept that they might just be natural. And so the obvious conclusion was that they were somehow artificial. And uh, people started to speculate that they were made by Martians. And Schiaparelli was skeptical of this. He didn't think that that was necessary. He thought there were enough sort of canal thing, natural canals and and straightish lines on Earth that um, you didn't need the artificial explanation. But he was Italian and he called those lines canali. Uh, I guess that's how you'd pronounce it in Italian. But in, in Italian, this means channels, which can imply either artificial or natural. And from the things that he said about them, it it seems that he was really meaning the natural channels, but it was translated as canals. And that really, that, that one uh, translation really spurred the idea that they were artificial. And uh, one American astronomer in particular, Percival Lowell, grabbed onto that idea and just ran with it. He even built an entire observatory in, in Arizona to, uh, to look at Mars and draw his own maps. And and um, toured around the country, uh, talking about the you know life on Mars. Even once this idea had been pretty much debunked by scientists um, for various reasons, the public still loved it. And as we know, it inspired all sorts of science fiction, like War of the Worlds. Definitely an iconic piece of science fiction uh, that <laughs> I heard had been inspired by this particular piece of kind of misunderstanding that started as a map, which. Uh, I I love and I think that also speaks to how much we tend to trust maps uh, because we see them as holders of factual information. Oh yeah, if you put something on a map, people are much more likely to believe it. There's there's a, a strong tendency to believe that maps are always an attempt to convey reality, and. That's just not the case. You cover um, a couple of these in the book where you talk in depth about some of the ways that we try and either actively or just through incorrect beliefs or agendas, political agendas, how we drive inaccuracy or how we drive um, maybe not entirely factual information using maps. Yeah, there, there are a bunch of examples Um in the book about how maps have been used to um, advance a particular agenda. We have um, a couple propaganda maps. We have um, an ad, some advert, at least one really beautiful advertising map. Um, but I think one of the, one of the interesting, one of the more interesting and, and actually insidious examples of this is a map of San Francisco's Chinatown that was produced in 1885 by the city's board of supervisors um, at a time when anti-immigrant fervor was was sweeping the country. Um, and in San Francisco, a lot of it was directed at Chinese immigrants who'd come in the decades, uh, in the preceding decades to work on the transcontinental railroad. And then once the railroad was, was finished, they started settling down uh, in the thousands in the Chinatown, what was then and, and still is San Francisco's Chinatown. Um, and because they were willing to work uh, for low pay and, and do uh, you know hard jobs, uh, resentment began to build that they were stealing uh, jobs from you know quote real real Americans and so the city passed a series of really discriminatory laws and the U.S. Congress in 1882 passed the Chinese Exclusion Act which 
essentially we'd call now a travel ban. It, it forbid uh, the immigration of Chinese laborers. Um, but there was still, the fact remained that the, the thousands of people were still there in Chinatown, and the city supervisors wanted an excuse to kick them out. So they commissioned this study, uh, a report, and a map that documented supposedly all the disease and moral depravity that was going on in Chinatown um, to, to make the argument that this was a public health hazard to the city and needed to be cleared out. So the map kind of purports to show um, all of the gambling houses and opium dens and Chinese uh, run uh, brothels in the city. Um, the report cites this doctor, this dubious doctor claiming that nearly all cases of venereal disease in the entire city originate in, in Chinatown. And you can see on the map, all these green blocks of, of buildings where there's there's prostitution uh, supposedly in that part of town, but I think that map is a, re a really good example of how um, you know maps are tools, and like any tools, they can be used for for good or bad, depending on who's who's making them and and what their agenda is. Not and I think Betsy's right. Like you see something on a map, you tend to believe it. Like oh, of course there must be you know that must be a brothel because it says so on the map. Maps also, especially historical maps, are such great little windows into the past, the um, pieces of information, pressing problems of the day, opinions of the day, like with the map you just called out about San Francisco's Chinatown. Uh, one of the the sections that I spent a lot of time kind of like with it close to my nose, looking at all the details was, um, Hitomi Terasawa's map of Hong Kong's, uh, I think it's Kowloon walled city. What a gorgeous set of maps and diagrams there with so much yeah. information. Yeah. That's, that's a really incredible, um, map. I think we're, we're fortunate. I think that's the, our, our book is the first time that's been published outside of Japan. Um, but Kowloon Walled City was, was a really fascinating place. It was the densest human settlement that's ever existed. It started as a squatter's colony inside Hong Kong, in, inside an old um, British fort in Hong Kong in um, the early 1900s and grew over the years into this uh, seven acre uh dense, dense complex of mid-rise buildings, like 13-story buildings that the residents built themselves. So totally not up to any kind of code and really uh, put together piecemeal. Um, and so there was the, the walled city had its own schools and temples, its own economy. Um, it was just all kinds of stuff going on. Some of it uh, legitimate, some of it um, more you know unsavory types of commerce. And so before the, the city decided in the 90s uh, to tear this place down and because it was just unsafe and there was a lot of crime. Um, but before they did, this group of Japanese architects uh, took it upon themselves to, to go there and document it for posterity. They convinced the city to let them in for about a week. Um, what they took survey equipment and cameras uh, and, and they just spent a week basically exploring the compound sort of during the time when all the residents, all the thousands of people who lived there um, had been moved out and the construction crews were getting ready to tear the place down. Uh, this little expedition team, as they called themselves, went in and documented as much as they could. And then this woman, Hitomi Terasawa, is a, an illustrator, made uh, just this spectacular map of um, 
it's a really long cross section through the walled city. Um, and she, in every little room in that, it's a really dense map, but every room tells a story. She tried to recreate what life was like in um, each room based on the remnants, the things that people had, had left behind. Um, and so you can see just all kinds of things. There are little mom and pop factories. There are all these uh, cut rate doctors and dentists who set up shop in the walled city because they didn't have a license to practice in in Hong Kong proper. Um, there are like strip shows, there are people shooting up drugs, there's just, and, and they're, you know, ch- innocent things, people hanging their laundry and children playing on the roof. So it's just such a, a rich um, tableau that kind of brings to life this crazy place that existed for, you know, a short time in human history and, you know, will never, will never exist again. It definitely. Greg, Greg had to work pretty hard to to get access to that map to publish it in the book, so we're pretty excited to have it. It's yeah. beautiful, um, and it definitely is one of these ones where you can spend so much time poring over the details. It is very evocative, and it gives you a little bit of insight into what life in this place would have would have been like. It it manages to be kind of claustrophobic on purpose. Um, to give you the feeling of how much was kind of crammed up next to each other in this space and how uh, these single spaces were used for so many different types of things right next door to each other. It, it's it's absolutely fascinating to spend uh, time pouring over. Very cool. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the way we create some of these maps, in particular, uh, the way we create maps when we can't necessarily see all of the things for ourselves. Obviously, when you're looking at trying to create a map of somewhere like the Grand Canyon, you go there, you take lots of pictures, you fly over it, you get satellite imagery. Um, but there's some really interesting mapping in here that's been done through kind of using other types of data. Uh, one of the ones in particular was Marie Tharp's underwater map, which um, was so huge and important scientifically, but is also quite a feat in being able to map something you can't see. Yeah, and the the fact that you really can't see the bottom of the ocean is part of why it remains very poorly mapped. And I would argue that Marie Tharp's uh, ocean floor maps are, you know, potentially still the best maps of of that space if what you're looking for is a real sense of what the ocean floor is like. Um, And, you know, like any good geologist, she had to do this by piecing together uh, very few pieces of information that were sort of scattered about and um, interpreting what went on between those points. And so she did this in, uh, I guess they started in the 1940s and 50s by uh, using the lines of echo sounding um, that ships did as they crossed across the Atlantic to begin with. So these are sort of depth measurements that were done using sound, measuring how long it would take for the sound to bounce off the ocean floor and return to the ship and deciding, you know, uh, sort of translating that into a depth. And so she would take these lines and sketch out uh, what the ocean floor looked like, exactly that line. And she had, you know, she would have maybe a dozen of these for the entire Atlantic Ocean. And so what do you do in between? Um, So she started um, trying to 
draw exactly what the ocean floor looked like right along these ship tracks. And she used a method called a physiographic diagram, which is basically a sort of little three-dimensional representational sketch of landforms. Uh, so she had lots of little uh, mountains and, and valleys and, and uh, plains drawn along these lines. And she started to notice that uh, in the center of the ocean, there was a uh, ridge, a rise. And we already sort of understood that there was a, a, a high point running down the center of the ocean. But she saw that there was within the high point, a, a cleft, a sort of deep valley at the very top of that high point. And she thought that this might be evidence of what at the time was a controversial theory called continental drift. Uh, and U.S. scientists were very opposed to this idea because they thought that nobody had come up with an, a reason for why and how continents would actually move across the face of the earth. Uh, there was a there was a lot of reason to believe that they had, but no reason to understand how they had. And for that reason, U.S. scientists were basically rejecting the theory. But she thought that this cleft in the top of the mid-ocean rise might be where plates were pulling apart and new crust was being formed. And so she started to map out the, the cleft and found it everywhere she looked. And while she was doing this work, uh, another... Um, scientist had a um, sort of a, an intern or a, a young guy drafting out the locations of earthquakes along uh, on the ocean floor. This was work for Bell Labs to help them understand where would be the safest place to put their transatlantic cables to avoid getting broken by underwater landslides, which had which had happened a few times in the past. And so as he was mapping out these earthquake epicenters, they noticed that the cleft and the epicenters lined up exactly. And so this, she understood, was going to be a way for her to map out where the cleft was in between the cross-sections that she had of the ocean. So she used that and her general understanding of what the um, different types of features you could have on the ocean floor were to sketch the entire ocean floor in a way that evokes how the terrain actually looks. So it's not a contour map. You don't have to interpret it. It's a drawing sort of at an oblique angle, like if you were flying over the ocean floor, what it would actually look like. And this was the first time anybody had done this. And so it was sort of the first time that people had gotten a glimpse of what the ocean floor actually looks like. And did this help sort of move the argument? Obviously, currently we see continental drift as a thing that is, but at the time it would have been highly controversial. So did this contribute to making continental drift a more accepted theory? Yeah, it definitely did. Um, there's, you know, there's a a moment where scientists are, are gathered to discuss this um, idea and the map is shown to all these scientists and it makes a really big impression because here is sort of physical evidence of a sort of, you know, proof that there's a potential mechanism that there, here's where it might actually be happening. And this happened in conjunction with a film that Jacques Cousteau showed at the same meeting because he had seen the map and thought, well, this will be easy to prove that this is not true. I'll just drag this new underwater uh, camera that I've made across 
the Mid-Ocean Ridge and show that there's nothing there. And of course, when he did that, he found that it was there. And so he showed this and uh, scientists believed it. Obviously, it was they were seeing it with their own ideas. So even if they hadn't exactly trusted Marie's map, once Jacques Cousteau showed them that it, in at least one place, this thing did actually exist, they started to believe it. And and a lot of scientists today say that that was a big moment that helped turn the tide toward U.S. scientists believing in plate tectonics. There's another great uh, representation of water uh, in the book. Um, it was the one that, because uh, it's early on in the book, I, I seem to recall, it, it's the waterways map of the U.S. that's, I believe, driven off of data collected from NASA's space shuttle program. Is that correct? Yeah, that is a map that is based on elevation data that came from, largely from the space shuttle program. And basically what they did was they took all these elevations and applied an algorithm to them that uh, could understand by the geometry where rivers were located on uh, on the surface and so mapped them all out and the map that we have is basically just it's just those lines of river and what's interesting is that because the rivers are all you know related to the topography of the landscape you can actually see the topography of the landscape just by having those rivers there so you can you can see the rocky mountains you can see uh the the um Sierra Nevada, you can see all the flatter areas. Um, so it's it's really actually a, a really beautiful picture, even though it's just a black and white line drawing. I also like how there are some of these maps that manage to capture not only a place and a snapshot of time, but also ongoing change through time. Um, there's a, a great map on the Mississippi River that outlines the way that that river has changed over time in this sort of overlapping uh, way of sh- using different colors to represent different time periods of the Mississippi River. And that's a really fascinating map that, again, initially, when you look at it, you think, what is is this even showing me? And then as you start to kind of pull it apart and look at each individual piece and how those different um, outlines of the river compare to previous ones, it gives you a really great little story of what has changed over time around that space. Yeah, these are some of my absolute favorite maps. Um, And uh, it's funny because these were made in the 1940s, uh, but cartographers discovered them maybe a couple decades ago, and they have become sort of part of the the cartography canon and hailed as as some of the the most effective and beautiful maps that have been made. And and what's really cool about them is that they show something about this river that everybody knows, the Mississippi River, that people don't really. Uh, understand about it. And that is that it it moves all the time. This river wants to uh, swerve from side to side across the, the plain that it cuts through um, 50 miles across side to side. And it has, over the past 6,000 years, moved quite a bit and built new channels and abandoned old channels. And so, the uh, this obviously has implications for people who live right next to the river because if it's moving, uh, your your house could just get eaten by the river if it changed channels and and went that way, and you know this is part of why the the Mississippi River floods all the time, and so the Army Corps of Engineer and engineers were looking 
for uh, ways to control the river for decades. And in the 1940s, they asked this geologist, Harold Fisk, to help them understand the past history of the Mississippi River so they could sort of get a handle on its future. And he went around and um, took uh, bores into the uh, old river channels and looked at the sediments and, and used aerial f- photographs and put together this picture of everywhere that the Mississippi River had been over the past 6,000 years and colored each channel that it had used a different color. And so the end result is this sort of crazy, loopy, colorful spaghetti picture that is uh, just so much looks like abstract art and yet also has this really organic feeling to it. And it just conveys so well the restless nature of that river uh, in such concrete, easy to see terms. It's, um, it's, it's really interesting that this was a very practical project. And these maps were buried in a government report for decades before the Army Corps of Engineers digitized them because they had only made about a thousand copies of this report with these really expensive uh, full color maps in, in it. And they would get requests from scientists all the time. So finally they digitized them, put them online, and then they were discovered by cartographers at some point. And they've sort of become this iconic part of cartographic history. Another way we often portray change in a static image on a map is uh, being able to portray um, information about certain battles during wars or during attacks. There's a couple of really interesting maps in the book that cover various pieces of information that very clearly portray the movements or the ebbs and the flows of certain attacks or ebbs and flows of certain battles. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the Gettysburg map, uh, which is, again, a beautiful map, but also as you drill into it, there's so much information there. Yeah, it's another one that's just, you know, could easily be mistaken as a a, a landscape painting because it is quite a beautiful landscape painting. And again, it's sort of a, an oblique bird's eye view looking down at the Gettysburg battlefield. But like you said, the, the man who made it, um, John Badger Batchelder, put on the map the location of every regiment of both the Confederate and Union armies for each of the three days of the the battle by interviewing everybody who was still alive, who had been in that battle and, um, you know, asking them to confirm where they were on the map and sort of piecing together this picture of what happened in Gettysburg. So yeah, there's all these incredible details in there. And that map actually helped us to, um, sort of understand Gettysburg the way we do as a critical turning point in the war and, um, sort of gave us this story of, of how the battle unfolded, which, you know, may or may not be exactly how it happened, but uh, he was doing all these interviews immediately after the battle occurred. So it's as close as we'll ever get to what actually happened. So there's obviously so many amazing maps in the book, but I'm actually curious to hear what maps maybe didn't make the cut, because uh, obviously a book has an, a finite size and cannot contain all possible amazing maps. So I'm curious to hear from each of you if there's a, a map that didn't quite make the cut, uh, but that you wish had or that you'd like to call out as something that people might want to investigate on their own. 
Oh, that's that's really hard. Um, <laughs> I think every every time we, I come across a, a great map, I wish we'd been able to to fit it in the book. Um, I don't know. There's there's so much great cartography being done even now that um, you know with all the the data that's available for for people to to work with and the digital tools that cartographers have. It's you know almost every week some somebody has done something clever and and often beautiful. Um, so I don't know if I have a particular example off the top of my head. Maybe Betsy does. Well, I can say a couple things. We definitely had uh, a, a number of discussions about how many geologic maps was uh, appro- appropriate to have in the book, because as as a geologist, I'm sort of somewhat partial to geologic maps. Um, but there is there is one map in particular that I wish we had been able to put in, but it's another map of the Grand Canyon. And we were trying really hard to have a broad range of geography and time periods and um, you know, we were trying to have different kinds of map makers. And this was uh, a map, you know, from North America from the 19th century. So it was, it was similar to too many other maps that we had. But this was one of the very first maps that was made of the Grand Canyon um, when they were first doing the uh, Western surveys. And it's, I think it's really beautiful, but um, I haven't quite found the story behind it yet. And so we didn't put it in. Any sort of modern map makers or cartographers uh, that you advise people who are interested in map ma- making kind of keep their eyes on? That's that's kind of fraught because if we if we mention <laughs> names, we'll be in, invariably forgetting other names. And um, there's so many great people. But I would I would say for for people who are interested in learning more about the current state of cartography to check out uh, NASIS, which is the North American Cartographic Information Society. Uh, they have an annual meeting every year where people um, get together, you know, working cartographers who work for government agencies and places like the New York Times and Washington Post, um, places like Apple, um, you know, companies. It, it, it's it's a really interesting and diverse group of people who are at the at the cutting edge and the forefront of cartography. Um, and they also uh, publish an atlas every um, two years called the Atlas of Design, where they feature some of the work that um, it's sort of, you know, they themselves feel is is the most creative and best work in their field today. And that's always a a really beautiful book filled with um, great maps that have, of all different types that have been made uh, just in the last uh, year or two. Yeah, I would agree that the that places like the New York Times are really doing uh, amazing, innovative maps um, that are really going to the the next step of helping people understand different issues that are going on with maps that are both static uh, for the print version and interactive and and are just really really interesting and and thinking of new ways to make electoral maps and things like that and uh i'd also say that national geographic continues to make really really interesting editorial maps for the magazine that um you know that they have both on the pages and then as the the sometimes poster sized supplements of different things like bird migrations and uh those are always really beautiful and informative at the same time 
One of the things that a no physical book can capture, but that the internet does really well, is allow us to provide new ways of interacting with maps and providing ways that maps can shift and change kind of with our control to show us things. Um, a common one that I'm sure many people, many listeners would have seen is before after mapping of spaces. So you get satellite images of spaces uh, before some kind of disaster or tragedy hits and then after and you end up with this sort of slider that lets you move back and forth to really sort of viscerally see the impacts of physical spaces uh, before and after major events. Um, and that's something that is much easier to see uh, sometimes in an online space or maps that kind of slowly transition from one state to another or where you can sort of see the physical change of something um, actually changing on the screen, which is I'm assuming kind of a there's a bunch of innovations in map making that come just from being able to interact with a map. Yeah, and I think the the Times is a particularly good example where they've, uh, you know, one of the first things that people do when you give them a map is is try to find themselves on the map, um, you know, find their own town or whatever. And, you know, the Times has done a bunch of interactive maps in, in the last few years that allow you to type in your, your zip code and learn something about, um, you know, the... I forget what the one was. It was it was something about education and where people end up in life and how that's rooted in geography. And so you can kind of type in uh, your own information or you know the towns where you've lived and and see the see the data, pull up the data for that area. So I think things like that are, are really interesting too, and in allowing people to not only interact but interact in a in a more personalized way. It's interesting to me as well. Um, I remember when uh, Pokemon Go first came out, I was uh, playing it in uh, where I lived at the time, and I hadn't lived there for very long, only about a year and a half. And what I found quite interesting was this game I was playing, it forced me to kind of go and see new and actually kind of interesting places in my local area. So it provided me that kind of mapping experience, and it gave me a reason to go to a place and kind of investigate it, uh, ostensibly through a game. But most of the kind of mapped locations in that game were also kind of interesting locations in my neighborhood. So it became kind of a, a cool way to like go for a walk, play this game, but also see some parts and notice some some areas of my neighborhood that I had never noticed before. So maps integrated into games is kind of an interesting new thing uh, for us as well. Mm -hmm. That is really interesting, I think, especially since it sort of runs counter to what a, a lot of the maps on the phone <laughs> that you're using, Google Maps and, and whatever, do, which is take you very efficiently from one place to the other while paying attention just to your route and not to what's around you and sort of, I think, disincentivizes exploration. Um, so it's interesting that, that Pokemon <laughs> is countering that and sending people to places on the map they might not have gone. But that's another thing that I think a lot of paper maps do is encourage people to uh, explore what's around them. Betsy and Greg, thank you so much. It is a absolutely gorgeous book, which I am very pleased to have on my coffee table. Uh, and I look forward to potentially uh, round two someday in the future to see more gorgeous maps, because uh, quite frankly, I could look at maps all day. <laughs> quite frankly, so, we do so look at we. maps all day. <laughs> <laughs> it was really fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having us.
And if you want to learn more about Greg, Betsy, or their book all over the map, we have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. And we will uh, attempt to link out to as many of the map uh, sample maps that we can uh, based on where we can find them on the internet. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 